Well, uh, we're going to dive right into the Word today. Um, if you have your Bibles, would you turn to Titus chapter 2? Uh, we'll be reading from verses uh, 11 to 14. So Titus chapter 2, 11 to 14. Um, you can, uh, yeah, download a Bible. If you, if you don't have a Bible today or if you don't have an app on your phone, I do want to recommend uh, for the guys, it's called He Reads Truth. For the girls, it's called She Reads Truth. It's a really cool Bible app. Looks looks really slick, and uh, that's fantastic. You guys, if the sermon gets boring, you're probably going to download that app now. Um, <clears throat> but you know what? I will take the backseat to the Word of God six days a week and twice on Sunday. So sounds good. Uh, we're also going to throw that up on the screen. So um, may God bless the reading of his holy word. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Amen. Amen. The English language is uh, full of oxymorons, um, phrases that seem to be contradictory, uh, often humorous, uh, but they can be useful when you're just trying to kind of relay an idea or a feeling that you have. And so uh, maybe if you're filming them, you'll say, act naturally. And if you really think about it, you're like, I don't know how to do that. My wife and I, man, we were just terrible at our engagement pictures because I just couldn't act naturally. We were like in the hills of like the Pomona like mountains. And I, I really wanted to have these like amazing looking epic um, engagement pictures. But my smile just got worse and worse every 30 <laughs> minutes. And he's like, smile naturally, act naturally. And I'm like, I don't know where to put my hands. I don't know where to put my head, the angles, everything's off. And I was just so, my wife was awesome at it. I was terrible. And I could just see the photographer getting more and more disappointed with me. <laughs> And he was just like, you're ruining this. And I was like, I am. I just couldn't act naturally, right? Um, or if you're a contractor or in the accounting numbers business, people will be like, oh, can I get an exact estimate? You're like, an exact, there's no such thing as an exact estimate. Right now, we're at phase one. We are just, you know, like we're, we're, we're vision casting here, but you want an exact estimate doesn't work. Um, so we can say, hey, you, you have clearly misunderstood me, right? You've clearly misunderstood me. That's an oxymoron. We act out in passive aggression. You know, that's like a phrase we throw around, all the passive aggression. But if you really, which is it? Passive or aggressive? And we're like, no, no, it's passive aggression. And we know what that means because there's a, a lot of, you know, uh, cultural analysis on that. But yeah, that's actually an axiom. Uh, an oxymoron. Uh, the one I actually use the most often, it's kind of like an oxymoron slash metaphor, is whenever I'm teaching a Bible study, and this actually happened this Friday, I was teaching on the doctrine of regeneration, and it's like late into the night, the college kids' eyes are glazing, I mean, starting rolling back beyond their heads, and I'm seeing like the shotgun barrels of their nostrils, and I'm like, okay, clear as mud, right? Clear as mud, and they're like, uh-huh, uh-huh, clear as mud. Yeah. And I'm like, you guys aren't listening, but... Um, so we, we hear them all the time, oxymorons. And so when we hear the phrase, disciplines of grace, because that's today's sermon title, disciplines of grace, it can seem like an oxymoron as well. What does grace and discipline have to do with each other? Aren't they contradictory? 
Isn't grace uh, God's free gift, his unmerited favor to us, right? Isn't that grace? And isn't discipline something we do? When we think of disciplines, we think of rules, we think of our effort, we think of performance and requirements and sacrifice and high standards, and that's discipline. And so where do those things kind of connect? Trying to combine the two things seems to be contradictory, disciplines of grace. But friends, that's far from the truth. Throughout this series uh, titled Renovation by Grace, we've been trying to answer the question, how can we experience this kind of holistic transformation? We want to see our hearts, our minds, our habits, our hands, our words, our entire lives changed transformed to be not like ourselves, not like this world, but more like Jesus Christ? How can we experience that kind of power and transformation from God? By his grace and not by our works, not by our own effort, not by our own attempts to kind of modify our behavior. Right? That's what the whole quest of this series has been. How can we experience transformation not by works, not by social, cultural peer pressure, but by grace? And today I want to unpack the relationship between God's role and our role in the pursuit of becoming like Jesus. Okay? And uh, that's just a fact, guys. There is uh, a key central role that God has in our renovation, but there's also a role that you and I have. No one ever coasts to Christ-likeness. In fact, if you just coast, you're going to drift away. Right? Just like the ocean, the, the riptide drifts you away from the seashore, Right? We will drift away from Jesus if we think all we have to do is just arms crossed, coast, come to church, sing some songs, and expect to be like Christ. Right? No, no slam against anyone with their arms crossed. I just saw something, you know, I was like, oh. Anyways. So I want to answer this question, um, or I want to kind of unpack three questions that help us kind of pursue this, understand the disciplines of grace. Uh, the first question is this, uh, why are the disciplines of grace necessary? Well, why can't just God just change us like that and make, like, make us like Jesus just like that? Why, why are these disciplines of grace necessary? Uh, second, what do the disciplines of grace look like in our lives? What does this look like? What, what are we supposed to do then? There's our role, God's role. What are we doing? And thirdly, how can we strengthen? How can we anchor and, and, and embolden our disciplines of grace? So why are they necessary? What do they look like? And how can we strengthen them? Let's look again at verses 11 to 12 in our passage today. Because uh, all these answers are going to come from Scripture. Paul tells us, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Do you see what Paul is telling us here? He's telling us that the grace of God has appeared to do two things. To do two things. To bring salvation and to train us to live godly lives. That's why grace has appeared, to bring salvation and then train us to live godly lives. And this word training carries the meaning of discipline. It carries the meaning of correction and rebuke and instruction. This word training is what a tutor would do or a teacher would do for a student, for a child, what a coach would do for an athlete, to train them up, to discipline them, to correct them, and to build them up. And Paul is telling us that this is why the grace of God has appeared. Not just to save you, but to train you, to discipline you. Understanding this is so crucial for the Christian life. The grace of God is not just given to merely save us, 
God gives us grace to transform us. God doesn't just save us and then leave us alone to continue to sin. Think about that. He didn't just save you. He didn't send his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross on your behalf and to raise from the dead three days later and by grace alone just give you new life, to offer you everlasting life if all you would do is trust in him. If all you have to do is say the sinner's prayer and then just be secured, locked in for eternal life and then you just keep on doing what you're doing, living life according to your patterns, your priorities, your habits, then that seems... That seems pretty shallow. That seems pretty empty. That seems like a waste of time. But, but Jesus tells us that he came not just to give himself for us out of love. He came to make a people, to purify a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus didn't come just to save you. He came to change you, to transform you, to make you more like him. God doesn't just forgive us and then abandon us to change ourselves either. So this isn't just some kind of like passing of the baton or exchange of responsibilities where God's like, I did my job. Jesus is like, I did my job. I died on the cross for you. Now it's your job to follow me, right? This is not like WWF where you tap your partner and the guy goes out of the ring and then you jump in and then you got to fight, right? No, we are told that God and his grace goes all the way through from salvation all the way unto sanctification. And eventually we're gonna talk about glorification when Jesus comes back and we're gonna be made fully like him. There is grace all the way through, not just to forgive us in Christ, but to make us like Christ. And if this is true, then we have to see that salvation and discipline, salvation and training, they are inseparable. They are inseparable. You don't see a break in Paul's argument. You don't see a break or a pause in his thought. He says, the grace of God has appeared for salvation and for training, right? Salvation and training, they are inseparable. If God's grace has truly appeared in your life, then discipline is necessary. But too many of us treat our spiritual training and discipline as optional, right? We treat it as optional. That's for the ones who are really serious. Those that are like really on fire for Jesus. I mean, I'm just like, okay. I'm just like entry-level Christian. I I don't want to be too crazy. I don't want to be a Jesus freak. So my discipline and training, I want it light. I want it manageable. Maybe an hour 15 on Sunday. Pastor Mike, only preach 35 minutes. Don't go 45 because that's, I got a game to go to today, right? Um, We want to be saved, but not disciplined. We are desperate for forgiveness. We are not passionate for holiness. Is that you on Sundays? You come and you're like, God, I need your grace. God, would you please have mercy on me and forgive me? But you have no passion for holiness. That's so many of us, church. Like the old song says, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. That's so many of us. Jerry Bridges, in his book, uh, The Discipline of Grace, he writes that the necessity of the discipline of grace is both encouraging and sobering, right? It's encouraging and sobering. It's encouraging because in this doctrine, in this invitation, in this promise that God offers disciplines of grace to us, we are encouraged because God's telling us he's going to be with us all the way through that you are not alone, it's not 100% on your grit or your discipline, your abilities, your devotion. God is with you. And he's going to strengthen you. He's going to 
provide for you. He is initiating and he's cultivating your spiritual growth. That should be encouraging, guys, because if I had to be like Jesus on my own, I couldn't do it. I would tap out right now. I would quit. If you had to be like Jesus on your own, you just couldn't. We can't even do it for 12 hours, right? If I challenged you guys, don't sin for the rest of the day, we wouldn't make it through the end of the service, right? We just wouldn't, right? We couldn't, we couldn't. But the promise that God offers is that he is initiating your sanctification and he's cultivating it, and it's by grace. It doesn't all depend on you. It doesn't all depend on us. We can depend on God for this. But it's also sobering. And it's sobering because if these disciplines are necessary, not optional, right? If they come part and parcel with the salvation that God offers us, if our transformation is necessary, then we have to ask, what happens if we never experience change? What happens if you don't become like Jesus in the slightest bit, if you are exactly the same person after Christ as you were before Christ, if, all, if the way you spend your money, if the way you speak, if the way you relate to your family members and your friends and perform at work and study, if all of your purposes and all of your actions are exactly the same after as they were before Christ, there's something sobering that you need to think about. Something isn't connecting. God's word is telling us that something is amiss. Scripture actually tells us that if that is us, if nothing is changing and we have never changed and we have no desire to change, this is an appropriate moment for you to question whether you're really saved or not. Did you really receive the gospel or not? Is Jesus truly your Lord and Savior or not? Hebrews 12 warns us. This is what the author of Hebrews says. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated. And the author of Hebrews is saying, this is what all the Christians experience. They experience the grace-driven, grace-provided, grace-initiated discipline of God. This is the great cloud of witnesses. And their experience, it's discipline. If you haven't, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. That's heavy. That is sobering. And what the author of Hebrews is telling us is that if you have not experienced God correcting you, if you've not experienced God rebuking you or testing you or convicting you to fight against sin, if you have never experienced God transforming you or renewing you and giving you a new appetite, new passions, new desires, new purposes, then you are not a true son or daughter of God. If you've never experienced God training you or disciplining you, then you are not a legitimate son or daughter of God. Why? Verse six in Hebrews 12 tells us, because God disciplines those he loves. He loves you too much to leave you where you are. He loves you too much to abandon you, to live addicted to your own sins, enslaved to this world. He loves you too much for that. He will not let you not change. God disciplines those he loves. And so if you haven't changed ever and you have no desire and ambition to change, my prayer and plead for you is to receive Jesus Christ, to accept the gospel and don't presume, don't presume that you are actually saved.
Now, we're going to talk a lot about obedience and discipline, before, but before I get into these, uh, it's so important that we understand what we're fighting for and what we're not fighting for. I kind of mentioned this uh, last week. We are exhorted to fight the good faith, uh, to, go, to fight the good fight of faith. That's a lot of Fs right there, right? Uh, to fight the good fight of faith. We've all heard that before. That's been an exhortation. Fight the good fight, guys. Fight the good fight. But we need to know what we're fighting for and what we're not. There is a right way and a wrong way to fight for holiness in our lives. Now, back when I was in high school, uh, one of my best friends and I, we kind of, you know, right around the same time, we both started to go out to church. We went to different churches, uh, but we were best friends at school, and we started to take serious interest in Christianity. And it was really exciting because we would both talk about our faith. We would learn worship songs and Christian songs together. In high school, it was all about Jars of Clay. And they had this album called Jars of Clay, Jars of Clay. And the song, our jam was like worlds apart. And we would just sit there playing it together, trying to harmonize. But it was like two dudes who were like 17 trying to harmonize. It was really awkward. But, but we're doing it. We were down. And, and we would try to hold each other accountable uh, for our spiritual disciplines, whether it's going out to church and uh, reading the Bible. And one afternoon, we started talking about prayer. I remember we were shooting pool, not at a pool hall, but like, you know, in a basement. And um, we were starting talking about prayer. And he told me that, yeah, Michael, I've been praying every night. I've been praying every night. And I was like, dude, that is awesome. He's like, yeah, every night before I go to bed, I always pray. And I thought that was really cool. And I asked him why. Like, what, what, what kind of spurred you to like say you have to pray every night before you go to sleep? What spurred that kind of devotion and diligence? And this is what he said. He said, um... Because uh, if I die while I'm sleeping and I forget to pray, God's going to send me to hell. <laughs> right? No, dead serious. I'm not even making this up, guys. Like, he's still my Facebook friend. We can confirm the story. He's dead serious. He's like, yeah, I believe it. If I die in my sleep and I don't pray for forgiveness for that day, for the things that I've done, God's going to send me to hell. I was shocked. I mean, you guys laughed. Like, I tried not to laugh in his face because he was serious, right? But I asked him, why did he think that? Why would you think such a thing? And he said that, you know, if the last thing I, he does before he goes to sleep is sin and not pray and not ask for forgiveness, then, then that's fair for God because he's not forgiven of his sins, right? He's got that, like, la the last thing he did before he died was like a, a crimson red X on his soul, and he didn't ask for God to forgive him, and so he thought he would go to hell. He believed it, and he thought it was just, right? He thought it was just. Church, do you know what that attitude is called? It's called legalism. It's called legalism, and it utterly opposes the grace of God. Legalism is the view that our works, our efforts, our disciplines can be used to make ourselves right and acceptable before God, okay? It's the idea that I have to pray and ask for forgiveness so that God will accept me and love me and let me go to heaven. If I don't pray, I'm going to hell. If I do pray, I get to go to heaven. As if our work, our disciplines, our mechanisms can get that for us. That if we do something good, God will do something good for us, right? And for my friend, his salvation was based on whether the last thing he did on earth was pray or sin. And this is completely false. Our text today reminds us that it is the grace of God, not the works of man, the grace of God that saves us and trains us. We are reminded that we have a blessed hope, 
I love that, that picture, that idea that you and I, we have a blessed hope. Why? Why do we have hope for heaven? Why do we have hope for the resurrection? Why do we have hope that our treasures are incorruptible? Why? Not because we have read the Bible X number of times or prayed for X number of hours or given X number of offerings. Paul tells us. Paul tells us. It's because Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us and purify us. Friends, your prayers do not purify you. Did you guys know that? Your prayers don't purify you. Your disciplines, your tithes, your worship, they do not redeem you. Do you know who purifies you? Jesus. You know who redeems you? Jesus. And prayer allows you to enjoy that kind of access. Right? Worship allows you to delight in the work, in the person, in the glory of Jesus. But Jesus alone purifies us. Jesus alone redeems us. Martin Luther, he reminds us that we are saved by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. So Jesus' purpose is not just to save and to purify and to redeem you. It's to train you as well. So this is where I also want to pivot. So that's the gospel. We're not saved by our works. We're saved completely, purified and redeemed by Jesus Christ who gave himself up for us. But we can't just say, oh, that's good. Hallelujah. Kumbaya. Let's go eat some donuts. No. Jesus says, I'm not done with you. I'm not done with you. I came not just to save you, but I came to train you. Luther says, yeah, saved by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. Good works matter. Jesus wants us to be zealous for good works. It's right there in the text. Now, what does this training look like in our lives? Okay, so that was the first argument, that the disciplines of grace, they're not optional. They are necessary, okay? It is not okay not to change, guys. It is not okay not to change. Jesus is not finished working with you. He wants to train you up, okay? So what does this look like? Verse 12 lays out the pattern for us clearly. The grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Man, every time I read that out loud, I want to say uptight, right? It's uptight, and, like, and sometimes we met Christians who don't live upright, but they, they live uptight, right? And so maybe that, that was a nice little thing. But yeah, God wants us to live upright and godly lives in the present age. In other words, grace teaches us to say no, and grace teaches us to say yes. Okay, Jesus is training us to say no to the right things and yes to the right things. No to the wrong things, yes to the right things. Yeah, <laughs> excuse me. There is a putting off of sin and a putting on of godliness. Last week, uh, I spoke on the importance of putting sin to death. Putting sin to death. And, and that message addresses specifically this kind of renouncing. How do we do it, right? Um, and this putting off in detail. Uh, here, Paul, again, he tells us clearly to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. I'm not going to go into great detail again on how to put off sin, but I just want to share one insight uh, that I read this week. And um, this author was simply saying, you know, it's easy for us, it's easy for us to think of ungodliness and worldly passions as just pure wickedness and evil, right? Ungodliness, worldly passions, it must be just, it must be like, Crazy debauchery in Las Vegas, pure evil, just like human trafficking and, and all the worst things that we could possibly do. That must be wickedness, ungodliness, and worldly passions. And when we read that, those labels, those words, that vocabulary might feel a little dramatic for us. 
And we'd be like, I don't know if that really resonates with me. Right? I don't know if I want to categorize my sin with those labels. But friends, if we think of sin, if we think of worldliness and ungodliness just as the most blatant outward actions, then you and I will have a tendency to think we don't have very much to renounce. We might think we don't have that much to put off. We don't have that much to put to death. And friends, that is, that's a lie. That's self-deception right there. If we think, hey, we're not murdering and we're not stealing, we're not committing adultery, then maybe we don't have too much to renounce. Maybe a little bit of pride here, a little bit of gossip. Oh, I clicked on something on Facebook that I probably shouldn't have, but I closed the window really quickly, and God's sorry about that. Right? We're not all that bad. But Paul talks about ungodliness, and he describes not just the outward picture of ungodliness, but in Romans 1, he talks about the root of ungodliness, the heart of ungodliness. And this is what he says in Romans 1. He says, ungodliness is failing to honor God. It's failing to give thanks to him, okay? Failing to honor him and give thanks to him. In other words, ungodliness is literally godlessness. It's when we live our lives without the awareness of God. When we live our lives without the consideration of God, the appreciation of God, the worship of God, the mindfulness of God. And when we assess our own lives, if you think about your last day, your last week, we're we're not our moments and our lives so full of godlessness, right? Not rampant debauchery, but just God forgetfulness your grades, your work, your health, the purchases you made, the things that you received, your friendships, your recreation, your rest, whatever it might have been. Was there a mindfulness of God? Was there a thanks and an adoration and an awareness of God or was there godlessness? Because friends, that is ungodliness. Failing to take him into account failing to thank him and honor him for all things in our lives, both great and small. You see, so many of us, we we believe we're theists. And not just theists, we'll say, we are Christian. We are monotheists, right? And we are Christian and we believe in Jesus. But I've found in my own life, I can be a practical atheist. I can be a practical atheist. I can go through an entire day, go through my routine without any awareness without any dependence on God, as if he didn't exist, as if he wasn't present, as if he didn't matter. And that's ungodliness in me. And I need to renounce that. Friends, is that in you? Is that your pattern? God calls us to renounce that and to be aware of him, to know him and to thank him and to worship him. Once again, the disciplines of grace involve not only a renouncing of sin, but also a putting on of godliness. So there's this great exchange. We have to say no to ungodliness. We have to say yes, right? Yes to him. Yes to self-control. Yes to uprightness and equity and justice. God in his grace intends to train us to live self-control, upright, and godly lives. And these are the three words Paul writes to Titus. Uh, Commentators, they see discipline exercise in these three words pertaining to three specific realms and relationships that we have in our lives. And the first is this. Self-control is the relationship that you have with your members. 
It is the relationship between your heart, your mind, your will, your words, your actions, your hands. Do you have self-control? How are you able to relate to yourself, to know yourself, to discipline yourself? That's the first thing Paul writes to Titus. You need to put this on. You need to be trained in self-control. The second is this. The second relationship is uprightness and justice. That talks about our relationship to others. Do you love others right, as we would love ourselves? Are we extending justice and goodwill and righteousness, which means right behavior? Are you doing right by your coworkers? Are you doing right by your family? Are you doing right by your friends? Are you doing right by the stranger, the person in need? Right? Is there uprightness in your life and in your human relationships? Because that's what God wants from us. That's what Jesus wants to train us up to experience and to live out, uprightness in relationships. Thirdly, being godly points to our relationship with God. Are we pursuing him? Are we imitating him? Right? Are we receiving our values, our truth, our patterns, our priorities from him? Being godly points to our relationship to God. Do we see God working in those areas in your life? Is Jesus training you in those three realms? Have you experienced this kind of discipline and training in your life? Are you, friend, growing in self-control? Have you learned to bridle your tongue? Or do you struggle with cursing, gossip, and anger? Has God convicted you to forgive, to be able to forgive others that have, that have hurt you, that have abandoned you? Right? that have betrayed you? Has God led you and challenged you and trained you and disciplined to be a person that can extend grace? Friends, I want to say this. Um, relationships, they cannot survive without grace. A marriage cannot survive without grace because you, you just can't do everything right, right. You can't. As a husband and a wife, you cannot do it all right. You have to be able to extend grace and forgiveness. Even friendship, Friendship, you, it cannot survive without grace. I, I, I have a friend who I thought was my best friend growing up. I think I did something wrong. He did not extend grace to me. I called him, I texted him for months. He never responded back. I haven't spoke to him in over 10 years. I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. But he would not extend grace to me. He would not open up lines for communication and reconciliation. And so this person who I thought was my best friend, I thought that this guy was going to stand next to me at my wedding day. There was no grace. Our friendship ended. Isn't that true for your friendships, though? How many times do you let that person down? Have you hurt them? Have you frustrated them? The only way your relationships survive, our relationships survive, is if there is grace if there is forgiveness, right? And Jesus is saying, this is what we need to learn. This is what we need to be trained up in to live Godward lives, lives worthy of the gospel. Have you experienced that? Do you know personally how fulfilling it is to live a godly life like Christ against a godless one? You see, God wants you to experience that and know that it's better right? God isn't saying, hey, take off the worldly clothes and put on the godly clothes, and the godly clothes, like, are ugly, right? He's not wanting you to trade down. He's not wanting to reduce your joy or reduce your happiness. No, God wants you to, to have more, experience better, to experience a greater sense of joy and fulfillment, and have you had that? 
Can you honestly say, yes, godliness is so much greater than worldliness? Or are you not sure? Are you not sure? Okay, because if you're not sure and you don't know, where's the discipline in your life? Where's the training in your life? It's okay, it's not okay not to change. Okay, I just wanna say that. It's not okay not to change. We may be all okay, uh, all at different places in our journeys, okay? You may have become a Christian this past month, three years ago, 10 years ago, or 40 years, okay? We might be at different places in our journeys. We may be moving at different paces, and that's okay too. Some of you guys may be, you know, just taking the slow route, the pedestrian route to Jesus, and others of you guys might be like super just amped up and on fire, and you just want to, you know, bullet train it to Jesus. That's okay. We have different paces. We might be at different places, but it's okay. It's not okay not to change. The life of a Christian must be Godward. Our movement, our faces, our trajectory, it must be Godward. Look at verse 14. Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Who are zealous for good works. Do you think, does that, does that sound like Jesus is like, oh yeah, you don't have to care about doing good. Does it sound like Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, go ahead, don't love your neighbor. Go ahead. Oh yeah, don't forgive your brother or your sister or your parent. Yeah, yeah, just hate them till, till they pass away. Is it, that's just Okay. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, I died and gave myself up for you that you might be zealous for good works, that you might follow me and imitate me and I'm gonna train you up. I'm gonna give you grace. I'm gonna give you the Holy Spirit to live this out, but don't sit there being idle. Don't sit there being idle and think it's okay because Jesus is not okay with that. In Ephesians 4, 25 to 28, we have a really helpful passage about putting off and putting on. And Paul writes this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. You see? The Christian life is not just like, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Sometimes it feels like a bunch of don'ts. But no, it's positive, right? It is constructive. That's why we call the series the renovation by grace, not the devastation, right, by the word, right? It's renovation by grace. Put away falsehood, but speak the truth. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Here's the turn. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Rely on the Holy Spirit. Sorry, that was my own notes. Um, you see that? It's not enough for us to say, oh, I'm not going to steal anymore. You know what Jesus wants you to do? Get a job and be generous. That's Christ-likeness. It's not just, oh, I don't cuss anymore, right? It's no. Learn how to speak words of life and truth and love, right? That's the picture of the Christian life that Jesus is longing for us to experience and live out. Now, at this point, you may be thinking, okay, this is another one of those messages, love God more, love others more, pray more, sin less, don't be ungodly, yada, yada, yada. I know this, right? And what you may be struggling with is not that you don't know these things, it's that you're not motivated and your desires are weak. Your disciplines are weak, 
right? Your disciplines are weak. So when the Bible says, do this, you're like, ah, do I really want to? And you really second guess it, right? We have the double-minded hearts. We have weak passions. You know you should. You've known that for a while. You just don't know how to get on track. And you don't, and you haven't experienced power in these disciplines, okay? Uh, Well, this next section is for you. How do we strengthen the disciplines of grace in our lives? How do we build this up? How do we move from just like, I know I ought to, but now I have, I have strength and resolve to, right? Two ways. First, ground ourselves in the gospel of Christ. We have to ground ourselves in the gospel of Christ to strengthen, to strengthen our disciplines of grace. Now, at this point, you may be longing for a really deep, engaging, personal, entertaining story to pull your heartstrings and give you, quote unquote, the feels. I don't have it. We're going to do the opposite direction. We're going to do some grammar. Okay, we're going to do some grammar. And I know, I mean, it's 11 o'clock and the sermon should be winding down. I should be climaxing, right? But I'm, I'm grammaring right now. And so, uh, but it's very, very valuable, okay? All throughout scripture, we find two grammatical care, uh, categories and they're called divine imperatives and divine indicatives, okay? If you're a teacher, you know an imperative is a what? It's a command, right? And an indicative is a description, Right, it's a descriptor, right? A divine indicative is a statement about what God has done, what God is doing, or what God will do. That's a divine indicative. A divine imperative is a command God has given to us to obey in response. So the, the outline is this. God gives a divine indicative, right? And then he gives a divine imperative. Because of who I am, you do this. Because of what I've done, you do this. And you respond in this way. Okay. Let's look at our passage again. Let's throw it up on the screen. Do you see the indicatives? And do you see the imperatives? Right. Where are they? For the grace of God has appeared. Indicative. Bringing salvation for all people. Indicative. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. It's almost like a, an imperative, but it's actually something called a participle, and it's describing the verb, right? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, indicative, to redeem us, indicative, from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Indicative. Where is the imperative? Verse 15. We're going to throw that one up. What should we do then? Because of what Jesus has done, saving us by his grace, training us, Jesus giving himself up for us, purifying us, what should we do? Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Okay? And I would actually go on to say, because of what Jesus has done, we can renounce ungodliness. Because of what Jesus has done, we can practice self-control, uprightness, and godliness. Okay, do you see that? Now, now, um, there was a uh, a tree recently that fell. I forget where I was, but I was talking to somebody, and there's a huge tree that like fell over in someone's yard. And I was like, "Oh man, it's so awesome!" I, like, praise God that it didn't hit your car or your house. But the tree looked completely healthy. I mean, it was a big old tree. Uh, the, the leaves were green, the roots were big. And I was like, oh, it's, it should be fine. Like, why did that tree fall? Why did that tree fall? And the, the owner said, you know what? It's um, all the rain that we've been having lately in Southern California. It weakened the ground, weakened the roots, and the tree fell. And I was like, really? That was it? He was like, actually, there's one more reason. Um, I didn't get the tree trimmed. I was supposed to get the tree trimmed, but the branches were too heavy. 
the leaves were too heavy, the, the top was too heavy. So when the storms came and the roots were weakened and the winds blew, that huge oak tree just toppled over. Now, this is a metaphor for the indicatives and the imperatives in the Christian life. You know what the indicatives are? They're the roots. They're the roots. They're the things that anchor us to God, telling us who we are, telling us who God is, promising what God will accomplish for us on the cross upon Jesus' return. Those are the roots of the tree. And you know what the, the branches and the leaves and the fruit are? Those are the imperatives. Those are the imperatives, the externals of the tree. Now, this is what Sinclair Ferguson writes about roots and imperatives and branches and trees. And, and this is what he says. The rigorous nature, I'm going to throw this on the screen, uh, of God's imperatives are rooted in the power of God's indicatives. Okay. God can demand so much from us. He can say, flee from temptation, take up your cross and follow me, right? He can say, resist sin to the point of, 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 of bleeding and death. Why? Because of the power of his indicatives. The weightier the indicatives, the more demanding the imperatives they are able to support. The more powerful the proclamation of grace, the more rigorous the commands it can sustain. So think about this. When Jesus says, read your Bible, how heavy of an imperative is that? But if you're like, oh, I can't. I just can't. I can't read my Bible because your indicatives are too weak. Your roots are too weak. You have no anchoring. You don't know the glory and the power of the word of God. You don't know the promise and the joy that God has in his word for you if you would only but read it and take him at his word. And so because your roots are weak, that simple imperative, read your Bible, you're like, ah, oh, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Die to yourself daily and follow me. That is about as heavy as an imperative and as a command that Jesus can give us. But why? Why can that command be supported by the roots? Because the indicative is this, because Jesus Christ took on the cross and he died for us. Jesus has given everything for us. He has sacrificed all of himself for us so he can command us to go and follow him, to be crucified with him, right? And no longer live for ourselves. Do you see that connection? And this is where we find power to exercise the disciplines of grace. You always go back to the indicatives. Who is God? Who is Jesus? What is the gospel? And we strengthen our faith. We strengthen our motives. We strengthen our passions and our purposes. And suddenly, you will go on missions. You're like, why wouldn't I go on missions? Suddenly, you're not afraid to tell somebody about Jesus because you know who Jesus is and he's worth it. But if you don't know Jesus, then a little bit of embarrassment is too much to bear. But if you know who Jesus is, you're not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God. You see that? The last thing I want to share is within each discipline. So we strengthen our disciplines of grace, not only by going back to the gospel, but we do it also by depending on the Holy Spirit. It is impossible to grow as a Christian 
without the disciplines of grace that God has given us. Okay, I just want to share that. There's no growth without reading the Bible, without prayer, without worship, without service, without fellowship, fasting, generosity. God's given us all of these spiritual disciplines. There's no growing apart from those things. So when people are like, you know, I don't do any of that, but I grow as a Christian, I'm like, you know, no way, bull honky. Right, I'm going to call it. Right, I'm going to call it. I think you're lying to yourself. Right, these are the disciplines. But just as impossible as that is, right, it is equally impossible for those disciplines to be effective in you if you are not relying on God's grace and His Holy Spirit to change you through those processes. Okay, so reading the Bible alone isn't going to change you because that might just be a mechanical act. Okay, I had professors at USC, New Testament, PhDs, geniuses. Right, they knew the Bible better than I ever will. Why did it not transform them? Why did they not believe? Because there was no reliance on the Holy Spirit. Right, there was no reliance on the Holy Spirit. There was no reliance on God's grace to effect change through the discipline. So the disciplines aren't enough. You can't just say, oh, I went to morning prayer three times this week. Why aren't I like Jesus? No. In prayer... In giving, right? How many of you guys have been sanctified by a check? You're like, I wrote a check. Oh, I feel like Jesus, right? But if you give, depending on grace, praying that God's will would be done through this offering, that the church would steward and that God would produce fruit from this, and you're praying over it, and that purpose, you know what that'll do? That will produce sanctification in you. You will experience joy, right? So I just want to encourage you guys, it's not brute mechanic disciplines. As you perform each of the disciplines, you have to rely on grace. You have to depend on the Holy Spirit and plead and beg and know that without God, the Holy Spirit, none of this is going to transform us. None of this is going to renovate us. Let's go to Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you that you are a God who has not only secured our salvation in Christ, but you also have secured our sanctification, our transformation. We thank you that you have not left us here alone just to, to try and figure it out ourselves and better ourselves. You have given us your grace. You've given us your word. You've given us your Holy Spirit so that we might experience the transformation that you've designed us for, Lord, that you've purposed us for. God, would you make us a people who are zealous for good works? Would you make us a people who love to speak words of truth and love and grace to one another? Would you make us a people who cherish justice and uprightness and equity? Make us a people, Lord, who, who are willing to be strong for the weak, gracious and generous to the poor who are able to comfort those who are grieving and mourning who are able to imitate your son Jesus Christ and delight in that God you know where we are God you know where every single person in this room is in their journey in their process of becoming like Jesus and I pray God that in your timing according to your will your will would be done, Lord. Make us like Christ. We long for it. We desperately need it. 
And I pray, God, that we would all enjoy it. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.